15, 16 months seems like so long ago. Who remembers Tiger King? Oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. I mean, it's it, a lot of time has passed, and, and people have struggled um, in different ways. And, and there's been loss. Um, relationships at times have been compromised and challenged and stressed. And um, I was thinking this week as we as I was looking at the passage we're going to study in Philippians this week that it made me think about some things that I've learned in my role. Um, my current role is I, I'm kind of a pastor to pastors uh, that span three states and uh, it's given me a chance in conversation and observation uh, to observe certain things. And I, made, I actually made a long list. I won't share it all with you today, but the last 15 months have taught me that the, the church is in crisis, uh, that the church, Big C, uh, is in crisis. Pastors and, uh, here's some observations. Pastors and congregations they serve were unprepared for the fracturing experience of the last 15 months. This, this quick um, kind of disruption, right? The, this, this disruption of relationships and routine and, and people isolating and everyone kind of finding that they had a, a different way of coping in, in a crisis, but the experience of community uh, was disrupted and left everyone feeling awkward and unsure uh, how to relate. Uh, pastors were deeply wounded by the criticisms they've weathered during the last 15 months. And honestly, m many are done. They're fried. They're over. And, and it makes no difference what the issue is. Uh, my observation is, after talking with pastors in San Diego County from different networks and denominations that I'm a part of, is that, that, that a lot of our pastors, they've been shredded. Uh, one way to look at it is we live in a county of three and a half million people, and honestly, a lot of our churches couldn't maintain unity over a piece of cloth. How, how do we navigate this? Mask on, mask off. What, what do we think? If a person wears a mask, they must think this and that and everything, and a person doesn't wear a mask. There's a pastor um, that I met with. His wife consults uh, with with literally the heads of state in Africa in curtailing the AIDS crisis. How, how, do we, how do we address AIDS in Africa? She is a world-class leading epidemiologist. And so on one hand, they chose during the, the pandemic to continue meeting in defiance of what the state and county orders were because they felt like that's what they needed to do. But the minute they said, but when we meet, we're gonna wear masks, they lost half their congregation in, in a weekend. I mean, how, how do we address political issues, social, social issues, street issues? I mean, it's, it has just shredded congregations and leadership. Either you're too far one way or too far the other way, and if you try and find a middle way, then you're not far enough one way or the other way. And so congregations and their leadership ha has just been hammered during this time. Pastors and congregations are discouraged as they wonder who's going to come back. It's kind of like a, a sci-fi movie, you know, that, that the apocalyptic mist is, is kind of dissipating and people are kind of coming out of their shelters 
Uh, actually, Pastor Vince and I were talking about the movie Greenland. Have, have any of you seen the movie Greenland? It's kind of missable. It's some kind of a popcorn. Just end of the world disaster epic. But at the end of the movie, there's this scene where everybody comes out of their shelters as the, the, there's a asteroid, right, that hits the planet, and, you know. And, uh, and as they kind of come out of their shelters, out of the mist, it's kind of like, who's left standing? Who's, who, who are we going to see? Who are we going to find? What, what's life? Is there any life out there? And what does it look like? And what is it going to feel like? Uh, people are kind of on edge as they, they think about that. Will my friends that I had at church still be at church when we start meeting together again? Uh, will, will, will we see new faces? Will we lose people? Do we find that we've lost people and there's something hurtful when people don't even take time to let you know that they're going or leaving, that there's no goodbyes, there's no closure, there's kind of these empty vacancies. And, and so it's, it's hard. It, it's hard. Politics, unrest, pandemic, and info wars has severely impacted the mental health of the church and our leaders. What do we listen to? Who do we trust? Uh, do we, how do we navigate our affinities and those things that we're naturally inclined towards and then disagree with? And then finally, generations are dividing within churches. Uh, how GI generation that, that still exists, the aging boomers, Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, and then someday we'll have Gen Alpha. And, 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 and all of those generations are seeing things differently and experiencing things differently. And depending on the generation of the pastor that's leading, you, you begin to see some of those emphases. And the trouble is, is that for aging baby boomers, uh, they, they thought that if we just kept the music contemporary, that everything would be okay. And then the problem is, is that we've learned that it's more than the music. You know, what, 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 what makes the church multi-generational is more than the music. The music was insufficient to guarantee the multi-generational unity within a local church. And, and this is just like my top five that, I, that I've observed. And, and what's, what it tells me and what makes this morning's passage that we're going to look at so relevant is this. The church is facing a sociological crisis that we have not seen before. It's not facing a theological crisis, it's facing a sociological crisis. And the challenge with that is that the, how we address the sociological crisis is going to frame our theology for generations to come. I'm going to say that again. How we address the sociological crisis is going to frame our theology for generations to come. When I was in grad school, I had a systematics theology professor who was quite meaningful to me. And I would go visit with him, especially as I was debating whether or not I should go for a PhD or not, and was visiting with him different kind of ideas and stuff. And, and finally, one day, he he kind of let out this deep sigh and he was from England and so being completely British they don't address you by your first name it's always by your surname so it's Mr. Slomka and and Dr. Brown said to me one day he goes Mr. Slomka let me just observe that the crisis 
the crises that you're going to find most difficult as a pastor are not going to be theological. They're going to be sociological. Because at the end of the day, the crises that can disrupt a church are rarely theological and almost always relational. And that's what makes Philippians, I think, such a timely letter for us to be in together is because there's no theological crisis in Philippians, as best as we can tell. But there is a sociological crisis, and depending on how the church arises to address it together, will long-term affect the theology. Let's, let's just take something that we all know is wrong, okay? Slavery. Slavery was first a sociological crisis. But then Christians ratified it by coming up with theological ratifications that justified the sociological behavior. Because, listen, I don't know about you, but I don't want to displease God. Okay, I don't want to knowingly displease God. But sometimes I cling to things that aren't helpful, and so I come up with ratifications for it, justifications for it. Does anyone ever do that? I, I mean, am I the only one? I mean, that, did, do, do we? And then, isn't it amazing how you can find scriptures that would seem to justify it? And you just go, well, maybe I'm not that bad after all. I mean, but it wasn't the study of Scripture that led you to that conclusion. It was your life orientation and posture that led to that conclusion. So that's the danger, is, is that we get into these sociological rudders, gutters, and, and they kind of keep us in that same lane. Uh, take, take another thing. Just look at your, your life, because sociology is about relationships, right? So when you're single and unmarried, you hang out largely with single and married people. And then you get married, and now it's kind of an in, you have to make an intentional decision to still hang out with women and men that are unmarried. And then you have kids, and then you find out it's just so easy to fall into the lane where you're around other people who have children the same age as you. And the only way to get out of that lane is to intentionally make a lane shift. Because otherwise, that river, that lane will just kind of carry us on. You've ever been to a water park and they have those lazy rivers? The thing about a lazy river is the current is hardly imperceptible, but when you get into it, all you have to do is lift your feet and do nothing. And, and the water just kind of gently moves you from station to station as you follow it around. Life, sociology reflects that life is like that. Life, in all of its goodness and all of its brokenness and fallenness, puts us into lanes that unless we choose to change lanes, we'll just kind of stay in that lane. And the trouble is, is that our theology will accommodate that. How we think about God and his revelation to us will accommodate the lane that you find yourself in and justify it and ratify it. And so the great thing about Philippians is, is that it challenges 
and addresses the sociological crisis that we find ourselves in. And so let me invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to look at the first five verses this morning. And these five verses tie in specifically with a new section of the letter that began in, in chapter 1, verse 27, when Paul writes, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then down in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, Therefore, referring back to verse 27, we're now going to get to its, its application. Therefore, if there is any encouragement, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, and any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection or mercy, complete my joy and be of the same mind by having the same love, being united in spirit and having one purpose. Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should, in humility, be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interests of others as well. You should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had. So that begs the question, when we look at these behaviors and choices and decisions and ways of relating that we have fallen into as, as, as the big C church, we have to ask ourselves, is there anything about the behavior of Jesus? Is there anything about the life of Jesus, his choices, how he would relate, how he would care, how he would express himself, that would possibly justify the choices that followers of Jesus Christ have made over the last months. In disruption, in division, in hostility, in criticism, in alignments. Paul gives us a very clear insight into how to address the sociological crisis that we find ourselves in. First thing he says is that Christian unity requires a community commitment, not simply an individual one. I mean, this could be a whole series in and of itself, and you're so lucky to have Larissa and Vince because that we could spin out to this for the next year, is that this is, this is this is huge. This is so counterintuitive and countercultural to how we think in the United States. We think in terms of individual. We don't think in terms of the community. And a very simple litmus test of this is when you read the letters in the New Testament and you see the word Y-O-U, Most of us read that as you singular. There's no you singulars in the epistles of Paul. It's all you plural. That in and of itself is a major lane shift. When, when Paul's writing, he, I think he cares about our personal obedience and our personal devotion, but that devotion and obedience, individualistically isolated and firewalled, let's say it this way, isolated behind a firewall of individualism, he can't imagine. In his world, he cannot 
imagine that. He wouldn't know what to make of us. And yet from his perspective, it's a no-brainer. In fact, in this opening verse, it's actually a series of rhetorical phrases. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the Holy Spirit, any affection or mercy. In other words, this is, these are rhetorical statements that, that presume the response, of course there is. It's inconceivable. It's inconceivable. It's unthinkable that a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, could ever doubt that those realities exist in a community united together in Christ. Inconceivable. Secondly, Christian unity is sustained by a spirit-filled mindset. When Paul says this, this phrase, I'm sorry, the wind. He says, complete my joy and be of the same mind. Uh, this word that he says that's translated in my Bible, be of the same mind, he uses 10 times in the letter of Philippians. Uh, it, it's a Greek word that has more than just, it's, it has with it the understanding of mindset, that, you, that your mindset, your, your, the, the way you think, the way you conceive, the way you perceive relationships, that you have this mindset that is steeped in a relational orientation. That, that is framed by the image and the example of Jesus Christ. It's, it's, honestly, it's a good time to go back to the old question, what would Jesus do? Because that's the mindset. What, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus have us do? How would Jesus have us relate? It's sustained by this mindset. The minute we get off that mindset, the minute we get distracted, then we're going to have this sociological drift into patterning our relationships, our community, our lives in a way that looks more like the world around us. I mean, think about it. The followers of Jesus, you had a Roman, collabor Roman collaborator, and then you had zealots who were there to usurp and revolt against Rome, and somehow this Jesus was the original person who could have this team of rivals and, and keep them together and maintain this unity because it was around Jesus. And the whole thing about it is, is that they all had to learn a way which was counterintuitive to the ways that they naturally had affinity towards. That have this mindset. We need a mindset that allows us to address successfully the sociological crisis that we find ourselves in. 
Christian unity requires daily decisions that are out of step with our culture. Can we just talk about humility for a minute? Paul says here, you know, in humility, this is as countercultural today as it was in the first century. In the first century, the way that you maintain unity in, in voluntary societies as well as in political ones was is that you recognize hierarchies. You maintain unity by giving honor who was to those who were above you and, by rec and then recognizing those that you were over. And as long as you stayed in your lane, hierarchical lane, then that's how you maintain unity. Now, Paul is saying here something quite different. He's saying that no matter where you are, you're to regard everybody else as being in a position above you, having, having a posture of deference. How, how do you do that? Why would you do that? What possibly could motivate you to behave that way? It's the person of Christ person of Christ. Walk in a manner worthy of Christ. And from that he says give up vain ambitions don't Assert your need to be right. It all is based out of our posture, which is based upon our position in Christ. In Christ is both the person who inspires us as well as the space and the place that we reside in. There's this union. One of the things the pandemic showed us in stark relief is that we don't have that orientation. Faith communities couldn't navigate the tensions. Churches blew up over just whether or not to wear a face mask. Walk in a manner worthy of Christ. Calvin Nolan, who used to work on staff here at Faith Community, uh, Calvin had a great line that I, I will always hold as original to him, but maybe he got it from someone else. He would say this, he says, I want to live my life in such a way that I give Jesus a good name. Walk in a manner worthy of Christ. And unity is the litmus test of authentic spirituality. Let me share with you that the U.S. church in the last 50 years has done something that the church has never accomplished throughout centuries of life together. And that is, is that we have reinvented 
our understanding of the Christian church to be about affinity. Did I like the music? Did I like the pastor? It's about affinity, personality, and comfort. And we package that all within a framework of rugged American individualism. And so when Paul writes a letter, and we, we all have our favorite quotes from the Apostle Paul, you know, but, but we've dislocated them from their intention, which was that, that they were always promises to a community, not just to an individual person. So for example, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. We think of that as something that you personally have to manifest the whole time. Right? Because it's all about moi. The Bible's all about moi. But in fact, Paul's writing that to a community. He's saying, as a community in Christ that is being threatened sociologically by your division between Jewish believers and believers in Christ who are not Jewish, and should the people who are not Jewish become Jewish to become followers of Jesus Christ, while they're facing this sociological tension, Paul is saying, as a community, you can claim to be spirit-filled, but if we don't see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control among you as a community, your spirituality is not authentic. It's not about whether you can quote it in your life. I mean, I do it all the time. I wish Paul left out patience. I'd be in pretty good shape if Paul left out patience. I mean, how often do we parse the teaching of the New Testament through the myopic lens of ourselves? And yes, Slomka should work on patience. But it's not about whether I can tick off in my life these things as being fulfilled or done. It's about whether we, as a community, express love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Unity is the litmus test of authentic spirituality. Let me put it this way. How we address our sociological crisis becomes public theology. Everybody in the United States, everybody in the world is a theologian. I know that it's easy to think that theology is conceptual, it's irrelevant, there's no reason to study and grow and things like that. But everybody's a theologian. Because at the end of the day, theology is about how do we think about God? So even an atheist is a theologian. When I talk to someone who has no faith in that there is even a God, let alone what kind of God, they will generally tell me why they don't have faith in, in God. And that in and of itself reflects a theology, how to think about God. I don't believe in God because if there was a God, he wouldn't allow X, Y, and Z. And that immediately tells you a lot about a person's theology. So. So how we address, how we take responsibility and address the sociological crisis facing the church is going to be our public theology. 
how people think about God is going to be based on our sociological behavior, our choices, our relationships. And let me tell you, they have every right to do it. Because on the flip side, one of the reasons why I was attracted to Jesus Christ was by the public theology that I saw in his followers. The community that I saw among people. The relationships, the love, the service, the sacrifice. That was all very attractive to me and that began to give me a framework when I was thinking about, you know, now that, I've, um, that I am a follower of Jesus Christ, who is my people? And I started looking around and watching. And it was the behavior, it was the decision-making, it was the choices, it was the relationships, the friendships. That began to shape my understanding of who the God was that they were following. Our sociology is our public theology. It's our unconscious theology. And we should not be surprised or dismayed or incredulous that people should come up with such an alternative view of God than the one we want them to, to have when they see followers of Jesus Christ splintering, fracturing over the very same things that they fracture over. My God, why would we think they would think something different of us unless we give them a reason to think differently about God. Maybe that's why Jesus says, they will know me through your love for one another. Imagine that. By your love for one another, Jesus says, the world will come to know me. Because if we can't even love one another, Why should anyone who doesn't share our faith think that God will love them based on our behavior? But the good news is this sociological crisis can be overcome. We don't have to, we don't have to live that way. And so... Paul says, again, therefore, I'm going to slightly paraphrase it now. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Absolutely. Is there any comfort provided by love? Absolutely. Is there any fellowship in the Spirit? Are there rich relationships in the Spirit? Absolutely. Is there any affection or mercy in Christ? Absolutely. Complete my joy and be of the same mindset. And how do you maintain the same mindset? Having the same love as Jesus had. Being united in spirit, just as Jesus said, I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. I mean, go back and read John 14. That's the foundation for here. Jesus lived as he lived because he lived his life in the Father, this mystical union. We live the life 
as followers of Jesus Christ that we have set before us in Christ, in this mystical union, and having one purpose. What's that purpose? It is to extend and multiply God's presence through imparting, expressing, and extending His kingdom in our world today. Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of us in humility should be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interests of others as well. You should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had. So here's a simple suggestion. Take some time this week and start to have, my brother has this thing at the end of the day where he has a glass of beer and some nuts and he calls it his attitude adjustment hour. Let me suggest that you take some time and you start to have your attitude of Jesus adjustment moment. Think in terms of in Christ, walking in a manner worthy in Christ. What does it mean for you to be a community builder here at Faith to help us together walk in a manner worthy of Christ? What, what attitudes need to be adjusted so that we can have this same community mindset that Paul is exhorting us to here in Philippians chapter 2? What can you do to foster that kind of community here at Faith? And then as a last step, think about your circumstances and your relationships in your life. And where would God inspire you to have a Christ-centered mindset for those circumstances? So you see, we go as Americans, and listen, I, I do it all the time. We go from me to we to they. Okay. It's quite different. In the New Testament, it, it's from we to me to they. Very, very different progression. Because the we will lead to a better me who can make me, uh, then fashion me as a better servant to the they. As a Jewish person, let me tell you, one of the reasons why it's so hard to lead a Jewish person to Jesus is because we have a strong we. We have a very strong we. And so the appeal to the me is rarely going to be strong enough to separate me from the we. Does that make sense? Because the we sets and defines our relationships. That's why as Christians we're such easy picking because if another thing comes along that appeals more to the me than the we, then I'm easily dislodged and dislocated. 
So how can we arise, address the sociological crisis that is very counterintuitive because it's all about the we? And I would say it's thinking about how can I be a community builder that is rooted in Christ, in Christ. And we'll all have different ways of perceiving and, and applying this, but let's apply it from a context of in Christ together. In Christ together. So let me invite the worship team uh, to come up, and as we lead into communion, I would just want us to sing the, the refrain of that last worship song. As a, as a lead into communion because Paul says that communion is not an I event, it's a we event. When we share the Lord's Supper, it's a we event. It's, it's a common sharing. It's not just simply an exclamation that Christ died for me. It's a sharing participation that Christ died for we, for us, together.